Today, I am talking to Silly Pines, Design Week Portland co-founder and president. Have you ever wondered how do artists come up with ideas for their next painting? How do CEOs disrupt industries? How do chefs combine unexpected ingredients? Where do leaders find their strength and courage? Well, you've come to the right place. Magical Humans is about to make you feel seen and connected on a whole other level. My name is Vania Vananina. I'm an artist and creativity expert, and I am on a mission to talk to extraordinary people about their creativity, failures, wins, and everything in between. My wish is that these magical humans inspire you to take the leap and lead a creative life. Hi, Silly. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I cannot wait to ask you all these questions and for you to share your story with our audience. Well, I hope that it's interesting for them. I think so. It will be. We'll see. You're a super badass creative. So what is your story? What are you doing right now? What do you do in your life? And how did you get to this point? Ooh, big questions. Just right out the gate. I love it. <laughs> Well, what am I doing right now? Uh, right now, I'm the VP of Creative at Instrument, which is a digital agency here in Portland, Oregon. Um, I also still am involved in Design Week Portland, which is a nonprofit that brings the creative community together here in Portland that was founded seven years ago by a ragtag group, um, and I am among them. So yeah, I would say, you know, most of my career has been spent as an interactive designer. And I rose up through the ranks kind of over years of doing a lot of digital projects and then was in a creative direction role. And I was, you know, overseeing a, a big portfolio of work um, with a really amazing team And on the side, I was kind of stewarding this startup nonprofit, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. um, that was organizing the community, which really began because I was hosting Creative Mornings. And how long did you, did you do that for? I was hosting Creative Mornings for seven years. Wow. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, when you stepped down, when you send your goodbye email, you... Um, enlisted all of the hosts and he was uninterrupted, right? It was Seven uninterrupted, years. uninterrupted, did not miss a month. Wow. I did have a baby in that time. And, and still. So that one month, um, someone else was hosting it, but the event but it happened. The event happened. Um, yeah, it was interesting when I was preparing for maternity leave to kind of itemize all of the things that need to happen for an event like that to happen. And it's a lot of things, but I got, into a really good system of doing it. So you don't feel like you're doing very much. You're just like, Oh yeah, this is the part where I do, you know, speaker orientation, or this is the part where I figure out the venue and line up all the things that need to happen. But it, but when you really itemize all of the things out and ask someone else to step in and do them, you realize that it's, this is a significant amount of work. Yes. Um, and then to do so every month at a different venue with a different speaker, with a different subject or theme for the month, For seven years. Yes. Uninterrupted. Like, that's a big accomplishment. Yeah, thank you. It felt like a big accomplishment. Honestly, I probably would have just kept going forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just got to the point where I was maybe doing a little too much. Um, In your life or at a creative's morning? Just overall. No, I mean, everything all together. You know, it was like I had a job with an agency called Fine that I worked with for 16 years who I loved and was, you know, running digital projects there. And then I was hosting Creative Mornings. I was running Design Week um, and also trying to figure out how to get Design Week kind of to cruising altitude as an organization on top of just the fact that it was a yearly festival and I had a baby. At, at a certain point... Which it, is a lot. Yeah. At a certain point, it was just like... 
this is maybe too many things to be doing. I have to start consolidating what I'm doing. What am I doing? (laughs) What am I good at doing? What is life? Existential crisis. No. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I, I think it was a good time to sort of step back and assess and figure out a little bit more strategically where to put my time. Um, I mean, I think that there's a time in life where it is really good to just say yes to lots of opportunities and try different things and really go for it and just be very open to every opportunity. And then there's a also, you know, seasons in life where it's good to assess everything that's on your plate and start being a little bit more intentional about where you're putting your time. How did you prioritize? What did you, did joy lead you? Did money lead you? Did time lead you? What was mm-hmm. your standard? Yeah. This is a complex question because, you know, one of the things that has always been important to me is a certain baseline of stability because I support my family and I need to have certain things in place to feel comfortable with yeah, well, your resources in line to yeah. be able to function. Yeah. Just to, to know like, okay, my family has what they need. We are in a, a good position. And so that, that of course is always a factor. And then on top of that, it is more of like a, you, you start kind of having to look at not just what gives you joy, which is an absolutely, you know, important metric, but also like, where are you having the most impact? Yes. And what of what you're doing is actually moving the needle the most um, mm-hmm. in the th- areas that you care about. Mm-hmm. And that can be personal too. It doesn't necessarily need to be work-related or community-related. It can just be like, now it's important to me to have family time. It can be, yeah. it can be anything. So yeah, it was, it was just time to kind of assess all of the things and also figure out from a career standpoint where things stood because I had just been in a phase of really like piling on and piling on and not really thinking too much about it of just, I was in a space of like abundance of just like, let's just do all of these things. Which was great at the moment, but now it's time for another thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, from afar, I met you because I don't remember what came first for me, if it was creative mornings or design week, but one of those. And you always seem to me like someone who has a lot going on as in projects and responsibilities and so many ideas. And the thing that I kept getting from you was thoughtfulness. Even with all of those things on your plate, always thoughtfulness, direct eye contact, human connection, and community-oriented goals. I... I don't know. We haven't talked specifically about what is what matters most to you, but everything that I've seen you do or work in has to do with community. Yeah. So for me, it's so it has been so inspiring to see someone because you know there there's different kinds of leadership, but your leadership is so human. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but it's always very. It feels accessible and it feels nurturing. That is so nice to hear. (laughs) You are so nice. Um, That's lovely. I, yeah, I think, yeah, people matter to me. You know, I, I feel like it's funny. A lot of people who know me well would probably characterize me as somewhat cynical. Like I have a pretty dark worldview overall. Mm -hmm. I had this interesting conversation with a friend of mine recently where this came as a surprise to him and he was kind of saying, I don't get it. Like with all the things that you do, you present as an optimist because why would you be doing all these community things if you didn't think that they made a difference or, and I said, Oh, I, I think it does make a difference. I just, in the, in the overall 
picture. I don't know how much I can personally change much, but I know from what's in front of me and the people that are around me that I can have that scale of impact. And it's my responsibility to do as much as I can in that scale. And I believe in the human scale. I think it's funny because we're living in a a time of, you know, tech scale where... Meritocracy, <laughs> pro, uh, productivity. Yeah, just technology has an unprecedented reach and scale now. And so people talk about scaling businesses and scale of um, reach and scale of customer um, acquisition and all of these things. And it just, those things are abstract numbers to me. And at the end of the day, the the human scale mm-hmm. and the care that people have for each other is irreplaceable. And it's also the only scale at which individuals feel agency. Like mm-hmm. I know what I can do sitting here looking at you and I have no idea what I can do with sort of the scale of some of the problems that are out there in the world. Yeah, but what you have in front of you is like that I can not necessarily control, but affect yes. in a way. Totally. And honestly, it it really doesn't cost anything to be open to people and listen to them and take some time and, you know, reflect back some of what you're hearing or add some texture from your own experience to to what you're hearing in a conversation. And that actually does give me great joy. My greatest joy really is the that one-on-one kind of connection with totally different people and different worldviews and different interests and passions. And it really was the thing that drew me to Creative Mornings in the first place because I'm not particularly outgoing. I'm I'm not really an extroverted person. And to me to have an excuse to be able to reach out to someone and say, you're interesting and I want to have a conversation with you. And I think other people would be interested in what you have to say and to have these kinds of um, spaces carved out to talk about whatever moves them um, was enormously inspiring to me and additive. Like if you set up sort of a diet for yourself of lots of interesting conversations with lots of interesting people, the combinatorial creativity of that, of just being able to start connecting ideas from one thing to another thing is, is a well of inspiration. That's exactly how I feel with this podcast, interviewing all these magical humans that bring their uniqueness into the world. Yeah. And it's so... It's unique because you're silly and no one else can be silly. And your background, your feelings, your experiences, and when you're exposed to that and you create a diet of content for your life, it can be so exponentially great. Yeah. And it it doesn't have to be with fancy people who, I don't know, whatever, are well-known. Yeah, no. It's it's just just humans. It's just humans, like everybody has something interesting to offer and has um, deep engagement with something that moves them. And you just kind of get into that space with them and you can really kind of vibrate off of it. Um, So yeah, I think for me, it's always been about um, not only doing that for myself, but also trying to create ecosystems where that can happen for other people. And that's, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that it was a hundred percent intentional and designed from the (laughs) outset, but design week really turned into that. It was, it was sort of this, um, organic grassroots, Um, manifestation of exactly that, that people could create these little sort of pockets of focus around something that really was 
a passionate area of interest and other people would flock to it and there would be these conversations. And then, you know, there would be some sort of vector from that to something else that focused on something else. And, and at the end of the day, you're sort of moving intellectual and social capital around in a place. Um, and creating a framework for it to happen. And also, you know, I think these days there's a lot of businesses and a lot of concepts sort of built on this idea of a platform, which we are with Design Week, but you can't really create a community with just a platform. Mm -hmm. You really have to put that care and community management into it. And you have to have an orientation overall of catalyzing and connecting and um, nurturing and facilitating that. So you can't just like hope that, you know, you give people a set of tools and they'll use it because again, the human thing is everyone needs something different. You know, one person may have an idea for a conversation they want to have, but nowhere to have it. A place may want to host programming but not have any programming and then then the the real kind of facilitation is to connect those two things and to see patterns and i think like for me what i've realized in doing a lot of this work is that the other thing besides that sort of human connection that one to one conversation and that real sharing of ideas. The other thing that really excites me is, is that sort of pattern recognition of creating an environment in which nodes are sort of starting to present themselves and then clustering them yeah. and encouraging um, movement. And, you know, I actually think that um, that's something that I've always loved doing. I mean, I think back to being younger and I always loved these kinds of pattern recognition type things. Were you a tiny community leader? <laughs> well, I was always, um, this is what I like to say also about my daughter. She has leadership potential. <laughs> she has a lot of, um, you know, managerial qualities. <laughs> And I think she's not bossy. She's the boss. Exactly. Thank you, Beyonce. So I think I was that way in the sense that I was always very much like a Julie, the cruise director in the sense of trying to, you know, make things happen the way that they were happening in my mind. But also I think because I was, I was born in Israel and I moved to the States when I was six. So, I, and I didn't speak any English and I think that experience of going from being an outsider, being an outsider and also having a complete um, sort of shift in the background to where it's like you're familiar with one way of doing things and then you're seeing objectively an entirely different way of thinking about things and doing things. And, and the words that you use are entirely different. And also um, six years old is when... Uh, children enter a stage of self and sense, like the awareness of where you are and that you are an individual outside of your family, but you're still part of something. Yeah. So that is a, a big, uh, it, it's a really important stage in a kid's life. And when you have such a big change, like it completely affects totally the, everything. And literally you change back, uh, not backgrounds, like, um, You change environments from yeah. Israel to the States. Yeah. And then everything that came. And I always growing up felt like, oh, I'm when I was here, I felt very Israeli. I was like, something about me is different here. But then when I would go to Israel, I felt very American. I was like, well, I don't really fit in here. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess a lot of my references are. No are you longer. Jewish? Yeah. So, but and is, it was Israeli wasn't Jewish. It was like a matter of Israeli. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, of just culturally. And I didn't actually relate to the American Jewish community very much. Like, it wasn't familiar mm -hmm. to me. Like, aspects of it, obviously, are the same because... Mm -hmm. It's the same um, faith. Yeah, but the 
the whole vibe of it and the, again, the kind of the worldview is very, very different and the psychology is very different. And so, yeah, I, I always, there's kind of this, um, concept of, you said it, the outsider or the stranger. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I think a lot of immigrants feel this and also like third culture people, which are people who grew up really moving around lots of different places and feeling kind of like they had no Misfits. home, yeah. um, feel this where, where you're like, I'm, it's not that I'm visiting here. I'm, I'm here to stay, right? But I am not from here. But I am not entirely this. Mm-hmm. It's actually softened a bit as I've aged, but it was the dominant sort of social experience that I had for decades. And I think that actually it aided in pattern recognition. I think mm. having that kind of a life experience really um, helps you be a better designer. It, it does. And it helps you be more discerning about cultural assumptions and about, you know, what actually is kind of underlying people's thinking and worldview because you you see it more objectively. It, and this is so fascinating. I think, well, you probably have experienced yeah, I, this. I, am. I, I didn't want to interrupt, but yeah, I do get you completely. Mm. And now as a foreigner here in the States, even though I'm from Baja California, which is a border state with the U.S., even though I had this exposure to the U.S. living here, Actually, it's, you know, it's it's that feeling that you cannot pinpoint that you are here and you're here to stay, but you're not from here. You're not of this place. You're not of this place and you will not ever be yeah. because you come from somewhere else and what your blood carries and your experiences and your energy comes from another place and you're trying to not, I wouldn't say fit, but you're trying to adapt yeah. to this new environment in that affects every single part of our daily experiences. And it's hard to explain to people that don't understand yeah. that. Yeah. And I would, you know, I would read, um, you know, novels like the joy luck club by Amy Tan and really relate to that and be like, I ha I don't have this lived experience, but what, what is being described here in terms of moving between two worlds is very recognizable to me. And this is actually true, I think, of a lot of immigrants and third culture people is that they really relate more to people who have had that experience than they relate to any of the sort of ingredients of their own identity. Yes. And yes. I, I feel that strongly, you know, so when you're talking about your experience, I have not had that experience, but I know exactly what you're exactly. talking about. It's intrinsic. It's like, yes, it's, you feel it in your bones. There is this, I cannot remember the, the name of the book, but it talks about, I believe it's a novel, but it, the, um, the overall subject is belonging. And it says something like, the narrator says, I should have never left home because I won't ever be from the place that I went to live to. And now that I'm back, I'm not of here anymore. Yes, that's so it. So we live forever in the in-between. Yes. And that is like, um, I wouldn't say a loss or a heartbreak, but it's something that you carry within you. And it's, it's like a mark, you're marked. Yes. But you know what's interesting is that I think I always have sort of felt this way, but increasingly so as I've gotten older, is that I feel that it is one of my most valuable lenses. Me too. Me too. Like, I don't experience it as a loss. I experience it as a superpower. Yeah, an added bonus. Uh, it's, it's the added value that you put into everything you do. And your relationships and how you connect with people. Mm -hmm. Like I've thought a lot about what would what would I be like if I had just stayed in Israel for the rest of my life or if I'd been born here and and I have no idea because you can't sort of you can't know these things. 
but instinctively I, I feel grateful for having had the lived experience that I've had because I do think it gives me this additional sense of empathy for a lot of different lived experience for having known that everything is so subjective, everything, you know, and, and a lot of times people who are sort of, you know, they're, they're from one place, they stay in that place. Everyone they know is from that place. It's like very hard. They wire differently. Yeah. It's very hard to kind of step outside of that and really project into something different because you have nothing to compare it really with. So I, to kind of circle back around, I feel like a lot of the, my mind is primed for filling in blanks. This is another thing, right? When you, when you learn a language a little bit later, even if it's when you're a kid, but when you have a second language that comes online and you are in social situations where the stakes are high to understand yeah, and you need to, what is happening, yeah. you do this thing. This is actually sort of one of my superpowers and also sort of, I think, a scourge of, of being multi-cultural uh, cultural or bicultural is that you get very quickly into filling blanks in. <laughs> and actually, you are you are primed for expert mind as opposed to beginner's mind. And beginner's mind is actually very valuable. And I've spent a lot of like the past few years trying to get myself back into a, a comfort level with admitting that I don't know things and starting from scratch because I've seen like how much progress people can make when they're just honest about that yeah, at the outset. I need help. Yeah. Can you tell me what step to take next? But I think like almost every immigrant will, will say that culturally speaking, there's really no reward for doing that when you're coming from a different culture. Mm -hmm. the, there, there's really only kind of a downside to that. Yes. And so you learn to kind of try to fake it till you make it and, again, fill in the blanks and smooth things over and yeah. maybe just kind of, you know. It's a superpower. And in Spanish, we say to, to exemplify that feeling of filling in the blanks, we say cacharlas en el aire, which literally means to catch them in the air. So that means like before a piece hits the ground, you catch it and you place it where you think it goes. So If I any, love that image. Yeah, and, and it's like, oh, estás cachando en el aire. So then you are infinitely resourceful. Yes. You have this infinite empathy. Yes. And you are made for survival and your resilience is... Yes, very resilient. But, but one of the things that I've realized again as I've gotten older is that, you know, survival is one thing, but... Thriving is entirely another thing, mm -hmm. you know, and moving from a from a mindset of surviving into a mindset of thriving is definitely a process. If you have been primed for whatever lived experience that you've had to be in a mode of surviving. And I say this as someone coming from a, a ton of privilege. So let me not try to paint myself in any sort of dishonest way. Like I think all the time about just the insane luck that I've had in my life. It's, it's breathtaking when you really sit down and kind of do the accounting because my grandparents were <laughs> Jews in Eastern Europe during World War II. Okay. Half of them got out right at the 11th hour. The other half of them were, you know, survivors. And then to think of like just the, the everything that had to align from having absolutely nothing two generations ago and being in a family that's lived on like four continents in the space of three generations and to be educated, well taken care of and provided with health care Living in a time in which a woman can actually professionally be taken seriously at the level at which I'm working, just all of the opportunities that I've had, it's insane to think about my grandparents to me. Like, 
it's absolutely, it's almost like I, when I think about it, sometimes I feel vertigo. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's insane. It's another world. Yes. It's totally another world. And so I say that with the, the knowledge that like I've gotten some good breaks, mm-hmm. really good breaks. And, you know, I think a lot about kind of the responsibility of that too, um, which is part of why for me, like, I mean, I've on, on a lot of the side projects that I do, I've been putting quite literally a thousand hours a year on these community projects, which again is a a space of privilege. Cause if you can do that, it means that you've got it covered Stability at home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but also like it does take sustained energy to do and you have to make decisions where you're like, all right, it's 10 PM. I could watch RuPaul's drag race <laughs> or I could answer these 500 emails that I have. Um, decisions, decisions. I guess I'm answering 500 emails, but maybe I'll put RuPaul on in the background. But, you know, <laughs> you really just do have to kind of make a decision to commit and deliver and sustain that energy. But it's because I feel the responsibility partly of being in a position to do so, you mm-hmm. know, and I do love all the people that I work with on it. And that gives me life, you know, the hustle, the adrenaline, the yeah. And just naked. also the feeling that, I mean, the people that I work with on all of the projects I do outside are the, the people that I choose to work with. You know what I mean? Like those are the people where you, you are so energized and fed by that collaboration. Um, and you would not necessarily otherwise have a way to do that together. Yeah. If you were not involved in those community projects, one thing to circle back from your position now at instrument as director of design week, Portland, one thing that I also want to, when you're talking about being identifying patterns in design, I wanted to bring back something of Design Week 2016, mm-hmm. I believe, where I participated as a volunteer and I was at the HQ in yeah. downtown Portland. And what I wanted to say is that in order to be a leader and and be able to stay in those positions without being a dictator and and actually affect change, positive change in the community, even if it's just one person, but, you know, ripple effect, you need to listen. And in my experience with you, you really listen as in, in many ways, in that professional setting, design setting, that specific uh, anecdote of Design Week in downtown Portland at the HQ was this project where you made a map of the city and with poles, like wooden poles on, what would you say, like a uh, wooden square. Mm-hmm. You designed a map of the city and then... There were all these tags that on one side said some like a word like housing or education or transportation, transportation or mm-hmm. equity, mm-hmm. many things. And on the other, it was there was a space to do notes. So people from all over the city came and took they could take as many tags as, as they wanted. And the idea was for them to share their actual experience in these neighborhoods of the town where they lived or worked or commuted and what it was needed. And then Design Week Portland gathered all this information, all this data, and addressed city council. But this was, you had like the facts in your hands. Like that is how you do things with knowledge. And knowledge from where? From the people that are actually affected by all of that. Yeah, I think the idea of public engagement through design was one of the things that emerged a few years into the festival. And really, it's a complex sort of 
exercise because you're getting all of this qualitative data back from people and you have to figure out a way to really make sense of it. And thank goodness we had amazing people who knew how to even approach that. Um, Steve Leathers, who we've worked with on, on many of our activations and in various capacities, was able to kind of take it and do a whole sentiment analysis to kind of pick up patterns in the phrases that people were using mm. and, and see patterns. You know, there were certainly quantitative um, aspects of it where we could see, oh my gosh, everybody's talking about housing. Housing is off the charts, mm -hmm. you know. But in terms of the qualitative piece of what what actually are we elevating, um, it's much harder to do that. And, you know, in terms of listening, it's funny because there are always unintended consequences from everything that you do, really, as a human and certainly as a designer and as someone who's activating something in the community. There was really interesting um, feedback to that installation where I got this email from someone during the festival that said, you know, I, I just walked through the um, through Pioneer Courthouse Square and I saw the installation that you had and I was with my daughter and I was really shocked and upset that, you know, our neighborhood was not represented. We live in East Portland. We feel that you did not represent East Portland well. Everything was much more focused on the central city. And as members of the city, you know, citizens of the city, it it feels weird to kind of feel excluded walking into that space, of course. you know, and he was so thoughtful, like, and so constructive in the way that he was sort of challenging us that it really was a growth moment for us mm. to be able to go back to him and say, you know what, you're completely right. Like we can explain to you all the reasons why this is what it is. We had a limited um, budget, so there were limited resources. We had to be strategic about which neighborhoods we picked. It's true that there's a there's a bias towards yeah. the central city in in our organizing committee, and we totally did have a blind spot. Like you're absolutely right. And did you offer something, or not not to make up, but after acknowledging that, was there opportunity for growth for yeah. next year or at that moment? Like yeah. what happened so, next? Yeah. So what happened was he said, you know, I'm actually involved uh, in the East Portland Rising group, and you know, we would be happy to talk to you. And I was like, that's great. We need more engagement in East Portland. And real voices. Real voices. And largely like the the sort of chicken egg thing with community stuff is you don't want to feel like you are ignoring any part of the city. And also you don't want to be the person from the central city that's rolling into East Portland like, I know what you need. Exactly. You know? Which so, is like being my point that you listen. Like how can you go and preach something that you don't even know? Exactly. You don't know you don't leave there. So for us it was actually just uh it was a, a good moment to be like, we need to build more relationships mm -hmm. out in East Portland. And we need to be thinking about how we can be engaged with other organizations out there. And it sort of lit a fire under us to, to think not only about East Portland specifically, but in general, like who else is missing from this conversation? Mm. Who else should we be inviting not only to attend these things, but to be centering the conversations? You know, it really was the first year where we thought more about how how is it exactly that we are putting these calls out for contributions to the festival and should we be doing it differently so that we don't just get all of the same players kind of over and over again. So we started spinning up different strategies for like, okay, well, let's get more people into sort of a resource council who are already connected in different communities. And that can be everything from You know, for many years, we were very weak in fashion programming, <laughs> for example. And finally, I I um, went to Eden Dawn, who um, is the, the fashion for Portland editor, mm -hmm. and just said, like, Eden, can you please help me figure out who should be involved? And can you help us with these more pointed outreach moments to the fashion community so that we can get more of this programming on the schedule, you know? And it's the same with geographic representation or any other sort of... And minorities and all of these. Any sort of representation yeah. is just like a lot of it has to do with who is 
in the flying formation when you are kind of setting out to put boots on the ground to invite people. Yeah, and trying to bridge the gap. And Yes. And so there's been a lot of work on that front since then. But the point is, again, like you do one version of listening and you don't know what you're going to get back. Mm-hmm. But you have to be responsive to what you get back. Whatever that is. Whatever it is. And sometimes it's an uncomfortable thing. I mean, how do you deal with that? Like, it sounds like this person that sent you this email that felt um, unrepresented, they were thoughtful and polite. But how do you deal in the many hats that you wear? How do you deal when someone lashes out or when you're put in a position where you either made a mistake or someone is angry how do you how does silly deal yeah. with that um i think the way i deal with it now is probably pretty different than the way that i dealt with it when i was younger i'm a pretty direct person and when i was younger i was a pretty unfiltered person and mm. a reactive person um and it wasn't always great <laughs> and as i've gotten older and also as i've taken on more leadership positions and you just see more, more things happen and you're privy to a lot of things. And you're also sometimes representing something that is not as good as it could have been. And you are accountable for it. You just have to get a lot more Zen a little bit about like, not everything is going to be great. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes there's fully legitimate criticism that you may or may not have the control to change. Mm. So um, you just have to sit with it and be like, you, oh, it sucks. I mean, I think a lot of times it's like people really, they need to be heard. You need to give people a space to express what they're expressing and feel validated for what they're going through. Unless, of course, they're abusive and then like screw them, just ignore that, right? Yeah. But if they're really coming from a place of pain from something, like you really have to validate people's experience, whether or not you either, you know, have control over it, can change it, can improve it, or even know the entire story of what's happened. Mm -hmm. And so you, you know, I have certainly been in situations where something negative is coming at you and you either... I mean, I've had some t- sometimes. You can, you can talk about specifics. Honestly, um, the one specific <laughs> example. Come on, come on, let it out, let it out. That's coming to me, which is so funny, is like every now and then with Creative Mornings, I would get this like nasty gram from someone because they either didn't get into the event or something happened at the event, like a tech failure that was kind of a pain. For them. For the audience <laughs> oh. to sit through, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um or whatever, something. Um, and people will write with this sort of like, you know, you you guys suck kind of thing. <laughs> and I'd like to say that um, I would just kind of l- let it go. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> sometimes I just couldn't resist and I would have to write back and be like, cool, um, let's, let's just let's just restate things here. It's a free event that give costs you breakfast. no money that gives you coffee and donuts. And here's what we do to try to prepare for it. But sometimes things happen as they did. And because it's a community event, we would hope that everyone can like understand, be cool. Yeah. So come back or don't come back, but that's how it is. <laughs> you know, like, Yeah. Anyway, and a lot of times a community leadership get because it's community oriented, it gets uh, it goes unnoticed or it's unappreciated or unrecognized because it's like you take it for it's like your parents, like you take them for granted or your teacher, like, oh, whatever. But it's like, wait, there's a lot that there's a lot of work that goes into it. Exactly. I feel that most people actually really do recognize and acknowledge it, you know, there's always here and there. There's always people who just feel entitled for whatever reason for things to you know, be there in their service. And there's kind of nothing you can change about that. I did have a sort of spicy email exchange with someone who was extremely entitled that way. And sometimes I just do that at this point for the kicks. <laughs> but 
<laughs> yeah, you have to do what you have to do. You know. In in all of these roles that you've played in your life, what is your favorite one? Mm. I mean, I get something different out of all the different things that I do. But mostly like You know, I I just love working with smart and talented people. I don't really care what the content Title, is. What the position of the Yeah. Is. I really don't. Like I just I love getting in and making something happen with a group of smart people, whatever that thing is. Mm. Um and at this point it's funny because I, you know, Most of my career was as a designer. I don't like I'm not hands on with any design anymore, which is I was going to ask that you are a graphic designer. You have a graphic design degree. Um, I was. Yeah, I, I have. I would say light training in graphic <laughs> design from Parsons. Um, okay. And then all of my career has been in digital where at the time there was no education for that. You just started working and started figuring out. So it's empiric. It's what just to do. Um, and so, yeah, interactive design is what I've been doing for my whole career. But as you start lifting into creative direction, you know, at Instrument, actually, a lot of the creative directors are still in the work. Um, mm. For me as a creative director, I was overseeing like a really wide portfolio of things. And I was basically just setting up teams for success and collaborating with clients um, and really just kind of setting trajectories and course correcting and, and inspiring the team and, you know, doing some of the sort of um, content strategy and conceptual sort of um, putting framing. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I keep getting a little bit further and further away from the actual craft of it. And speaking about um, typography and, design you did I remember at one point you were doing this beautiful Jewish things for couples and it was like in Hebrew yeah ketubas okay mm -hmm. and they are can you explain what ketubas yeah. are a ketubah is um the actually the the most accessible definition of it is that it's like a prenup mm. I mean It's basically a, an, a legal document, an agreement of what the terms of the marriage include. And historically, this was actually meant to protect women in marriages, saying kind of, you are entitled to these things mm -hmm. in this marriage. Um, the original, like, canonized text is in Aramaic. Mm. Um, and then there are modern texts that are a little bit more like commitment texts. They're a little bit more like vows mm -hmm. that people will use if they're not orthodox. So they'll, you know, want to give a nod to the tradition, but they're like, I don't really want you to give me 200 silver pieces <laughs> um, or less if I was divorced before. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Which is very transactional yes. and not very romantic at all. But it's also very beautiful because it's in Hebrew and it's this beautiful typography. And yes, and there's a there's a really rich history. Um, the ketubah is such an interesting document. You know the the Jewish diaspora is so diverse because it's quite literally every imaginable culture. And so when you look at the range of artwork, and it's considered kind of you know a blessing to make it as beautiful as possible. Mm. But as a as a sort of a ritual piece, it's considered good luck to to make it as beautiful as possible. And so you see like a ketubah from Iran looks totally different from a ketubah from Italy in the Renaissance mm. period. Looks totally different from a ketubah in the 60s that Ben Sean designed in the United States. So It, it's like the document actually carries the cultural context of mm -hmm. the Jewish community and is influenced by the secular culture around it. And so, yes, I when I got married, I noticed that there were, weren't at the time very many examples of modern design. So, so you did yours? So I made my own. Oh. And then a friend of mine was like, would you make mine? And I was like, sure. And then... A friend of that friend asked and then, you. And, and then, yeah, and then... 
I made a few and I left them at a Judaica store in Berkeley as samples. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe someone will want to buy this and like got a call the next day that, yeah. Someone. And so for several years, I was actually making quite a lot of them. And are you very religious or is it more your Judaism is more cultural? Yeah, I'm not religious at all. In fact, I told my parents when I was 12, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to have a bat mitzvah because I'm not going to get up there and say all those things about God. And they were like, okay. <laughs> so yes, I would say I'm not very religious. But yeah, I it is sort of a... You're fond of the traditions? Yeah, and I'm I'm connected to it. It's, it you know, it's a family thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is sort of an identity thing. And yeah, and I think that there's a lot of richness. And I think a lot of things about me are very influenced by Jewish history and identity. And I feel very bound up in sort of the trajectory of the Jewish people, mm-hmm. even though, again, like I'm not, I'm not a practicing and religious Jew. But yeah, it's funny. I think a lot about it because I don't really, I, I don't take my kid to synagogue or do any of the things that... Um, like Passover? Do you celebrate Passover? We do celebrate Passover. I actually made a Haggadah with a friend of mine. What is that? Haggadah is the um, the book that you use to tell the story mm-hmm. of the Exodus, um, which sort of forms the center of the, of the holiday meal. Them. Now in your... In, in your everyday life, when is a moment that you feel magical? Mm. A moment that I feel magical? Mm-hmm. I think for me, it has always been connected to dancing. Really? Or music. Yeah. Wow. Totally. Um, it's funny because like I my you know, my kid loves to engage in imaginative play. And she's really into magic, you know, fairies and all of those kinds of um, five-year-old passion topics. And I'm um, I'm really not into making up stories or, you know, in- engaging in that way. I'm not that into imaginative play. And honestly, like, I feel bad sometimes where I'm just like, can we, can you just, can we play a board game or something, you know? <laughs> I'm not really that into that. But where I do feel sort of connected to something larger is, yeah, through through music and dancing. What is your nonverbal expression? What is your go-to genre? Or what is it? Is, is this in the form of concerts or dancing at home or singing in the car or the shower mm-hmm. or a festival of light and sound? Like, mm-hmm. how does that look for silly? Well, you know, when I was younger, I danced and... In high school, I was like in a modern dance, like performance um, company. And then I kind of stopped in college, but I just love it. And I will, I mean, I will totally just dance at my house. I'll go out dancing. I, I don't know. I will find whatever space to do that because, you know, sometimes I'll take a class or whatever. Some kind of kinetic outlet. Yeah. Okay. I think so. That is super interesting to learn about you. Would not have guessed. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed. What is your favorite tool or resource? Mm. As a designer, as a mom, as a human, whatever. My favorite tool or resource. I mean, at this point, it's just my Rolodex. (laughs) (laughs) Human resources. Yes. I'm all about human resources. It's funny because I've said many times that Design Week has no financial resources really, but man, do we have human resources. Sometimes they, that make up for, you know, sometimes there's, in in Mexico, there's a saying that people can be so poor that they only have money. Mm, That's true. I know people like that. Mm -hmm. What was your first dollar ever earned? Ooh, my first dollar ever earned was making copies on floppy disks. Of what? Of software updates. <laughs> what? Yes. Little hacker. 
Yeah. <laughs> and who would you sell it to? Well, my dad was um, an entrepreneur and he had his own software business and he would employ the entire family to do that during a season of like, we're sending out upgrades to all the customers. <laughs> so he would pay us like a dollar for every floppy for, oh, please, I wish more like for every day that we oh, did God. it. You know what I mean? slave labor that is <laughs> so funny <laughs> what is do you remember i mean it can be this stage too but your favorite tv commercial oh my favorite tv commercial well the Monchichi song always gets stuck in my head i don't know that it's my favorite but can you're you probably it? too what, young what to know this Monchichi, Monchichi, you're so soft and cuddly <laughs> No, <laughs> that song actually like if is you it ever Chichi or Monkey like there's like a little um, where their hair grows. No, that's Chia Pet. Yeah, were basically that. I thought maybe not. Maybe I'm misremembering. Oh, I thought maybe they were more like dolls. I don't know. Okay, but anyway, if you ever have a song stuck in your head, that song that is... will unstick <laughs> any song. But then you're the, stuck with, with the Monchichi song. Which, yeah, so I don't know. It's diminishing returns. It is. What is the best advice someone gave you? Always surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. That is a great advice. Yes. That has served me well. Share an unpopular opinion. Ooh. Avocado toast is not just for millennials. <laughs> what is something that you believed before that you now believe it is not true anymore? These are deep questions. I'm a deep person. Yeah, you are. I actually have a really good answer for this, I think. I used to be really resistant to the idea that reality was relative. Like, I was actually bothered by science fiction that would question the veracity of real lived experience. Mm-hmm. But we are living in a time where facts are so much more malleable. And what I see coming down the pike is very much this sense of no shared reality between humans, which actually fucking terrifies me, to be it honest. It is terrifying. Super terrifies me. I, I want to believe that our literacy will improve. Hopefully. On all of this. And that we'll be able to discern fact from fiction as the techniques get more and more sophisticated. But the truth is that the human brain is not that hard to hack. And I think my sort of youthful clinging to this sense of like objective truth is really no longer even possible. Mm hmm. At the, when you started explaining your your answer, I thought it was going to be some sort of like interstellar kind of shit, you know, like mm. contact, like mm -hmm. outer space. But yeah, I see. I see where you're going and what you mean. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. What is something that you failed at? I failed at going totally solo on any of my projects. I actually tried once. And it scared the shit out of me, to be honest. What was it? Well, I was working, I was working at Fine and I had the Ketuba side thing going on, a couple other things. And I was like, I'm going to try and the like, floppy discs, the floppy discs <laughs> on the side, just, you know, to make up for whatever slow months I was having. And I tried to do that for like six months and could not handle it. Like just could not handle it. Did that mean that you were the sole uh, project manager for a... For, um, it just meant that I was an independent, like a freelancer, a freelancer, oh. like self-employed, had my own little product business on the side, was taking on like freelance things, etc. And it turns out I'm an indoor cat, not an outdoor cat. Mm. That's a big lesson because that will inform successfully inform the rest of your life. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Good job. Yeah. You, you, you tried it. It's not for you. Thank you next. <laughs> yes. Thank you next. Um, what was the last gift you received? The last gift that I received, actually someone gave me flowers 
and a sweet card thanking me for doing something that I considered to be something that's just part of my job. Mm. And when people like thank you for doing a thing where you're like, no, really, I I should be doing this. You don't have to thank me for it. It's like, it's just so nice that people recognize effort, you know? Mm. Yeah. Do you have any tips or life hacks that you use in your daily life? Oh, yeah. Um, my biggest life hack is realize that there's a season for everything in your life. <laughs> you cannot do everything at once. Mm-hmm. And just be very focused on the things that matter to you at any given point in your life. And don't, there's this whole sense of like having it all, which you literally cannot do at the same time. And so, you know, people are, people are always asking me like, how do you manage to do all of these things? Like you have a baby and you have, you know, this side nonprofit thing and you have a job. And and I'm like, I Those are the things I do. I don't do anything else. Those because are the things I do. Care. Yeah. You're asking me if I can go out to dinner? No, I cannot go out to dinner with you. Like, what did I do this weekend? I did not go hiking the way that you did. Like, because I was the, working. These, and these are, are the my things, things that I am doing. And maybe there's a time in my life where I'll be like, I'm going out to dinner with you and I'm hiking and screw all of this stuff. But right now is not the time. But right now is the time of just recognizing the, you know, two or three most important things to me and mm. investing everything in those things. That is such good advice. What is it that you like to enjoy besides RuPaul Drag Race? You know, <laughs> I love films. I love going to the theater, like a good theater to see movies. I love, as I said, I love dance, but not just doing it. I love going to see dance. Mm. I have this yearly um, pilgrimage that I do down to the Bay Area to see the San Francisco International Hip Hop Dance Festival. What? I didn't e know that was a thing. Oh, yes, girl. Now I want to go. They're 20 years in. It's so good, and the crews are always so good. So, yeah, that is what gives me life. Good. To round up, do you have any crazy travel stories to share with us? Well, I was traveling through Europe with a friend of mine during college, and... We just decided it would be a good idea to not bother getting a hotel room in Pamplona. So <laughs> we did sort of sleep face down on a random table of a sidewalk cafe for the night. Mm -hmm. um, and then went to see the running of the bulls in the morning. Oh, my God. Can you imagine if you had forgotten and you were there? <laughs> were you wearing like a all white and a, a red bandana? No, okay. we weren't actually running. We were just watching. Oh, my God. And then the memorable thing for some... Oh, the sleeping under a table <laughs> on the street is not a memorable thing. What's a memorable thing? <laughs> the most memorable thing is that on the train from Pamplona to Madrid, there was a guy wearing a shirt that said, Nadie tiene un chorizo como el mío. What? And I was like, honey... <laughs> No, thank you. Do you want to translate that to the audience? No one has a sausage like mine. <laughs> oh, my God. Out of, like, all the beautiful things I can remember <laughs> about remember Spain, like La Sagrada Familia or, like, <laughs> any of the other things, what I mostly remember is that dude's, is that shirt. dude's shirt. Well, it makes for a good podcast story. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming, for being here. I'm so grateful for your generosity, your time, and for Thank being you. such an amazing human. Oh, my gosh. You are an amazing human. Thank you so much. Thanks for having <laughs> me. This is what I am taking away from my conversation with Silly. Number one. There's a time in life to say yes to all the things, really go for it and be very open to every opportunity. And then there's also seasons in life when it's good to assess everything on your plate and be a little more intentional about where you're putting your time. Figure out what is your standard to prioritize and assess from there. What do you need to be able to function? What is it most important for you? Where are you having the most impact? Number two, it doesn't cost anything to be open to people and listen to them. 
you might be able to impact them from a unique perspective. Number three, you can have a baby and still get things done. There's wonderful humans ready and happy to help you. Number four, find an excuse to get out of your comfort zone. Cover spaces to talk about things, set up a diet of interesting people and conversations. The resulting creativity is a well of inspiration and resources. Number five, everybody has something interesting to offer and has deep engagement with something that moves them. Number six, we always find a way back to what we love. Pay attention and honor it. Number seven, multicultural minds and immigrants are primed to fill in blanks, primed for expert mind. Being an outsider brings up pattern recognition that helps us move between two worlds and be infinitely resourceful and empathetic. This becomes a valuable lens, a superpower. Number eight, sometimes you can multitask by watching RuPaul's Drag Race and answer 500 emails. Go get him, tiger. Number nine, always surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Number 10, make time to see things that inspire you. Be completely honest with yourself and only do the things that give you life. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and you feel a little bit more inspired, more magical, more human. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show. Say hello to me on Instagram and tell me what resonated with you or what did you like the most about today's episode. If anything you listened to made you think of someone, please go share it with them. The world is a better place when we make each other feel seen. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I see you, I hear you, I love you. Talk to you next week. Bye. This show is produced by Annie Fassler of Puddle Creative with music by Megan Diana and cover art by Vania Vananina, that's me, and Maya Busby. Mm-hmm.